So I love maps. If you come to my house, you'll find in the t- right next to the table is a big world map. If you go to my office, you'll find a snowmobile map, not because I'm a snowmobiler, but because I wanted a map specifically of the area from Oostburg to Port Washington that I feel like is the area God has given us responsibility for. And, but I'm also, I also have a, a couple of maps in my closet, one of which is supposed to come to my office and get installed on the wall. I've even got a Lord of the Rings map. Uh, <laughs> trying to find a good place for my Lord of the Rings map. But I love maps because it, it helps me understand this is where I'm at. And if I want to go somewhere, now I know where I'm going. I love maps. I used to, that's how I drove. And then, I don't know if you remember, Google created this like way of getting directions back when we used flip phones where you would like text in, this is my address and this is where I want to go. And then they would tell you, this is how to get there. Then, of course, GPS. Now we all have these devices that we can put on our dash and it'll tell us exactly where to go. And I actually find that useful. If I'm driving around here, I don't really want to use a GPS because I know where I'm going and I might just decide to go off on a side road. But if I'm going a long way, like this summer, we were headed to we were headed to Kentucky and I like to know how much further I have to go, but it also tells me, hey, if you if you take this side road, you'll save some time because there's a wreck ahead. I really like that function that says, hey, this is this is what's up ahead right now. Go on this side road and this detour. But I've always had this idea, what if, Somebody hijacks all of our GPSs and sends us all to the same place. But because we don't actually know where we're at, we're going or where we're at, we all go there anyway and we get into a, just kind of this, this great big wreck. That, it kind of ha- actually happened to our family or it felt like it happened. We were headed through Chicago. Chicago traffic does what Chicago traffic does. It says, hey, if you take this road, you'll actually save time. And I was like, okay, let's save time. I hit the button. And then everybody else on the interstate goes that same route. And we were just crawling for two hours. As I went, did Google not think, hey, if we send half the people this way and half the people this way and a quarter of people, well, I guess that'd be too much. But anyway, different portions, then we could spread all this out. But in that moment, it felt like everybody went to the exact same place. But because it's Chicago or a suburb of Chicago, and I have no idea where it is, I was stuck. Like if I'd had a map that told me this is where you are, this is, then I could have maybe figured out the way to get back to the road I needed to be on. But I didn't have a map with me. I didn't feel like pulling out my phone and, and trying to do all that calculation myself, so I just kept following it. And I've been thinking about that this week because I didn't know where I was. and My orientation was off. I ended up just having to follow the thing that told me this is where you are and this is how you're going to get to where you're going to go. And I, we start this new year, and everybody has these these stories for, and these, these, these plans for their year and these dreams for the year, but it's always based on some place that I've defined that I'm at. Some map that I find myself in is what's orienting my life for this next year. Maybe, maybe for you, you're hearing these messages that say, I am defined by the things that I do, and so this year is going to be the year of doing. I'm going to do lots of great stuff so that I can really make myself into something this year. That orientation is oriented around, I am what I do. Or maybe it's, I am what other people think about me. And so I've got to make sure that my kids impress everybody with good grades and that their clothes look nice and they behave when they're in public because I am what everybody else thinks about me this year. Maybe that map that's orienting your life this year is I am what I have. And so you've got plans for your budget and for the tax return. You've got plans to do all this stuff because I am the things that I have. And I don't want to leave out kids here that maybe you're a kid and you go, I am 
the things that I do. And so I need to make sure that I do really well in school or that I do really, really well in sports or I do, do something so that everybody sees me, notices me, likes me. So each of us this starts this year with this kind of map, defining who we, who we are, where we are, and orienting us to into this next year. And quite honestly, like that GPS, it was, seemed like it was directing everybody into the wrong path. All of these definitions that start with me and what I do and what I think and what I have are going to get me in a traffic jam this year. They're going to send me down the wrong road and into this disaster. And so right now we're in the middle of a series on the Trinity. It's called the Eternal Dance. And what I want to show you today is that this year, the call to us is to define and orient our lives around God, the Trinity not around ourselves and what we've done. And so you might look at this year and go, man, I've got to make something of my life. I've got to make something of my marriage, of my kids, of my job, of my retirement. And so orienting, trying to figure out how do I make this work, I want to show you today that the Trinity is supposed to be the North Star for us this year. We are grounding everything, orienting, planning everything around the Trinity. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab your Bible. If you don't have a Bible and your hands are free, grab a Bible from the seat in front of you. We will have the verses on the screen. Go ahead and flip to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. Verse 4 starts, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me read that one more time. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we look at your word, as we hear the truth that you have given us about yourself, or that we would ground our lives, that we would define our lives, that we would orient our lives around you, God the Trinity, in Jesus' name. Amen. And so here's the roadmap for what I want to do today. I want to, I, I want to point here in these verses, I want to point to the fact that God in his very essence, God's very being is distinction and unity. And then I want to show you how that distinction and unity should be the thing that defines and orients our lives this year. Here, right, we see in Ephesians chapter 4 that, that three are called God. This is what we talked about last week. The Bible says that three are called God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Bible also tells us that each is fully God. Not each one is a part of God as if they're pie pieces that fit together to make up a whole, but that each is fully God. And then these verses also say, verse 6, one God. The Bible is very clear that there is one God, three are called God, each is fully God. And the way, this is what we talked about last week, the way that the church has put those statements together, defining those things from the very beginning, from the disciples themselves to their disciples, have put those things together saying that God is one in being or one in essence and three persons. 
one way we can describe that that I want to describe it today is that there is distinction in God in his persons, but unity in God's being. Distinction and unity are actually the very ground of reality. You see, we look at the world and we see just distinction and diversity. We just look around and see plants and animals and rocks and trees and we see all of these things and they seem to be separate. But we also look at the world and we say there seems to be this cohesion, this, that everything seems to fit together as if there's a plan, as if all of these things fit together. And we end up finding that that distinction and unity have been there from the very beginning because that's what God is like himself. Distinction and unity. The Bible the way that the Bible explains that, like I said, three are called God, there is one God, each is fully God, is that he, the way that that would end up working is that the distinction ends up showing in how they relate to one another, not in who they are in themselves, each one in, in and of himself. That, though, that they relate to one another differently, and then they relate to us differently. We talked about this a little bit last week, that, that God in his relationship, the Father is the one that sends the Son the Son submits to His Father, and then the Son and the Father send the Spirit, and the Spirit points to glorifying and joining the Father and the Son. And so we have this relational diversity as they relate to one another differently, relate to us differently, but are totally equal. So what we find, distinction and unity, is one, it's always been this way. Two, that they are totally equal, that the Father's not better than the Son, and the Spirit's not worse than the Spirit. Son or the Father. And that means that in and of themselves, that love is real. The meaning, if distinction and unity are who God is in and of Himself, then love is real because love has been there from the very beginning. It didn't depend on created beings for God to be love. Instead, love has been there from the very beginning. Bruce Ware says that what we learn from distinction and unity is that unity is no enemy to distinction or diversity. And that diversity is no enemy to harmony. You see, that's not a message that we get in the world. The the message that we get in the world is that if somebody is different than me, thinks differently than me, wants to do something different than me, has different gifts than I do, then that's a threat. And so we try to push that down. If I'm honest as a dad, most of the time I want everybody in the family walking in lockstep with me, doing what I want to do, saying, you should do everything that I want to do because I'm the one that's right and everybody should be just like me. And so I begin to act as if diversity is an enemy to harmony. No, we can't do, we can't have different gifts or different kinds of plans. No, everybody has to do what I want to do. Maybe that's the way it is at your house, where it's easy to yell at everybody else to get them to do what you want them to do, because we think that unity and harm and diversity, unity and distinction, separateness is some kind of an enemy. That's the kind of thing that we see in the church when in the church we begin to say, no, everybody needs to have my gifts and start doing things the way I would do them. We're going to be unified, then everybody needs to be like me. As opposed to saying, oh, unity and distinction, diversity, are actually the very ground of reality. What I want to show you today, from here on out, is I want to show you that if we're this year going to ground everything in the Trinity, if we are going to ground our whole lives in the distinction and unity that we see in God. First, we're going to ground our salvation in God's distinction and unity. You see, 1 John 4.14 says that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And so right there we have the distinction in the Godhead, unified in working for our salvation. 
And so the, the call to us is not to just go, okay, God wants, God is wanting to save me. God is offering salvation to me. But the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in their diversity and unity are actually working for my good. Why does this matter, Joe? Why would you beat this? Why does this matter? Why do we need to have a trinity if we're going to be saved? Without the trinity, who's saving and who's doing the saving from someone? Without the trinity, we have, we have a word like the atonement. We have the word like the atonement. The atonement is this image of the scapegoat. The scapegoat was they would take two goats and they would, they would sacrifice one and sprinkle his blood on the altar. And then the priest would come and he would lay his hands on the other goat and he would confess the sins of the people. He would confess the sins of the people and the people would stand there in agreement. And then they would send the goat out into the wilderness as an image that one day God would actually transfer the sins of the people onto someone else and sending him away so that the people don't bear their own sins. Without the Trinity, there is no atonement. There is no scapegoat without God the Trinity because no created being could could take our sins. The goats can't take our sins. And without, without God being both the Savior and the God receiving our salvation, there can be no scapegoat. Or else it's just God in and of himself wandering off into the wilderness. You see, it's also, it also, our salvation, diversity and unity, also shows up in justification, which is a big word that means that God treated Christ as I deserve to be treated, so that he can treat me the way Christ deserved to be treated. You see, we ground our salvation in diversity and unity because if God is just one, and then Jesus was just a created being and not God himself, then there's no way he could take my place he couldn't, there's no way he could live in my place, living the life I should live and dying the death I should die. And so w- without the Trinity, there is no justification. There is no transfer. My sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to me. And my fav- probably my favorite word in, the gospel, uh, in explanations of the gospel is this word propitiation. Nobody talks that way. Your Bible probably just skips that translation and says atoning sacrifice. Propitiation is a a long way of saying exhausted. You see, when, when the Bible describes it, the idea is that if God's wrath is a cup, then propitiation means that Jesus drank the cup dry. So there's no wrath left. But if Jesus isn't God, there is no one to exhaust God's wrath on our behalf. And so we're spending this year hoping that God might turn away from our sin. But instead, the, we can ground our salvation in the fact that God is distinct, three in one, and united, one. And I love that image that this year, my salvation is not grounded in what I do. It's not grounded in what you do. This year, if the cup of God's wrath has been drunk dry by God himself, then your salvation is secure. There's no cup, there's no drops left. There is no image of God coming back at us with anger. The Trinity means that God is satisfied because God satisfied himself. And so... What does this mean? What does it mean this year for the Trinity to be the North Star of my salvation this year? It means that the Father was pleased to look on Christ and pardon you. This can't happen without God the Trinity, but because it's true, it can happen that God has looked on Christ and pardoned us. The second 
The second area of our lives that we ground in the distinction and unity we see in the Trinity. The second thing is we ground our relationships in the Trinity. You see, if we look in Ephesians 5, we see this image of distinction in the family, distinction in roles, father, mother, children, but we all see unity as they are working together. And so the family is this picture here on earth of what we see in God himself. It's the same thing we see here in Ephesians chapter 4. The call is to the church, be united, be yourself. Use the gifts God has given you. You don't have to be like everybody else. To, to, to function in the church, you don't have to be like Joe. You don't have to be like somebody whose gifts you see and you admire. Instead, be yourself because we see in the Trinity this unity and distinction. And so he's an encouragement. In the church, be united and be yourself. Use the gifts that God has given you because it's actually God-like to be both united and diverse, distinct. And then when we look in Colossians 1, we see this unity and diversity is called to us in the world. Colossians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So right here we see in the family and in the church and in the world that distinction and unity that's is in the world and in the family and in the church reflects what we see in God. And so God's call to us is actually to become like him. For us to begin living out the life that he has enjoyed from the very beginning. You see, we call this series the eternal dance because the idea is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit living in love for one another is like a dance. And so we see here this unity and distinction is a call to us. Be like that. Can the church, can the life of the church be this dance of people with different kinds of gifts, different kinds of backgrounds, instead being united in love for one another? Can the family not be, can everybody do what dad thinks is the right way to go? Or can everybody do the thing that mom wants to do to make mom's life fulfilled? Or can we make our lives revolve around our kids so that they can be successful? Instead, it's this dance of love as those that lead and those that follow reflect the heart of God. It's actually an invitation. Become God-like. Lead, submit, love. So we need to know this distinction and unity in God or else we will never realize that equality, there is an equality in both submission and leadership. Those that lead are not more important than those that follow. Some of us leaders need to be reminded constantly, no, leading is not better. And some that follow and they get sick of it and say, God, why can't I be more and do more and do this stuff? No, no, that in God himself, there is an equality that some lead and some follow, and it's beautiful as they dance in love around one another. So imagine what the family would be like if instead of somebody thinking, I'm the leader of the dad or the mom or the kids, saying, hey, I'm the leader, I should get my way. Instead of saying, hey, I'm the leader, which is no more important, I'm going to use my leadership for my family as my blessing to them, not as their way of following me and me getting what I want. What if those of us that are called in the world to submit to ungodly leaders, or to godly leaders, to ungodly bosses, or to godly bosses? What if we were actually called become godlike 
Submit in love towards them. Can your life be this dance of love around them? That's actually God-like. A few years ago, well, I guess we'd had Ellie, so this is a long time ago. We, uh, we went to a wedding in the town where Emma and I met. So we went to go see friends or stay with friends or something. And they wanted to take us out to barbecue. Fort Worth, Texas has the, some of the best barbecue. And uh, so we were going to go to this place, and I couldn't quite remember how to get there. And these were Emma's friends from college, or there's my friends too, but they, they said, we're going to go to this place. And at the time, I was 24, and I had this inflated sense of what it means to be a leader, and I don't follow anymore because now I'm a man, and I'm married, and I have kids, so I'm going to go my own way. And since they wouldn't tell me how they wanted to go, they just said, can you just follow us? I drove off the complete wrong direction, added a ton of time to our trip, because I wouldn't, it was totally unwilling to follow somebody else's lead. I had this idea that, that following somebody in a car was beneath me now that I'm a man. You can laugh. <laughs> I had this idea that, that oh, I can't follow. I'm a, I'm a leader now. I'm a man. I shouldn't follow. And so this passage confronts that idea and says that, no, within God himself, there is diversity and there is unity and there is equality. There is no better place. Being the leader is not better than being the follower. And so sometimes we find ourselves in that following place. And it's like, this is an invitation. Will you? Will you follow? Will you follow with, with joy and with love? And will, will you say, hey, this is an important role. Somebody's got to follow. I'm going to be a good follower. I want to do the best I can in my role. Or when you're a leader, can we say, no, I, I'm not just going to try and be the best leader I can be. I'm actually going to try and use my leadership, not for my own advantage, but for everybody else's advantage. Not so that I have less work and more notoriety, but so that they have more notoriety, so that they have it better because of my leadership. The Christian life is a call to both distinction and unity because it's, it would build within, because it is grounded in God. The Christian life is a call to distinction and unity grounded in God. And he is inviting you, whether in your family and in your church or in the community, God is inviting you into his character and into his life. This gives us a bigger picture of what it looks like to be formed in the image of Christ who both leads and follows. And so the call here is, can we define our year? Can we orient our lives? Can the GPS and map of our lives be the God, the Trinity, distinction and unity, both submitting and leading in love? If I'm honest, I'm not good at really any of this. If I'm honest, as I prepared this this week, I confessed to my children at the table, there's so many areas of this I'm bad at. They, they could tell you the secrets of dad's poor submission. They could tell you the complaining, the bitter spirit. I've confessed just a little bit of my idea that all oh, leading is better than following. And so often my salvation is grounded in things like, have I confessed? Have I changed? Have I tried to do something different? And so maybe like me, you end up grounding your life in something else. One of these things I named at the beginning, accomplishments or reputation behavior. So where is the good news for those of us that do not define ourselves this way, grounding our lives in the Trinity? The good news for us is that the Son did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, to clutched, held on to, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human form. We find the son who delights in doing the will of his father, but ends up dying on a cross like lawbreakers like you and me. He's the one who died with a mocking title of king, in between two thieves, traded for a murderer. He's the one who gave up everything that he had earned, taking on all the things that we had earned. This idea that God treats Christ as I deserve. So that he can treat us the way Christ deserved. How does that become ours? How does that be- Maybe you're a guest. Maybe you're, you've been here for a long time. You've been holding on and you've been saying, oh, but I think I'm a good person. Oh, I think I'm trying. I think I'm getting better. No, the story of the Bible is that God made the world. He made it good and all of us rejected him as king and said, no, we will not live your way. We will do our own things. We are not going to ground ourselves in the the life of the Trinity. We are going to ground our lives in ourselves and our accomplishments. The story of the Bible is that God will one day judge his enemies forever. That sin and shame and death and guilt are ours now because of sin, but also we will one day be driven from his life, driven from relationship with him, without all hope. But the story of the Bible is that instead of leaving us there, God came living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, so that all who repent of sin, that means to turn away and say, I won't take that. Instead, I will lay my hands on Jesus, the scapegoat, and I will trust in him and his life and death for me. I will, I will take him and him exhausting God's wrath on my place. I'm going to take him so that I can be treated the way Christ deserved to be treated. So the invitation in this passage is for all of us. Will we define our lives by the life of the Trinity? Will we begin to say, no, my salvation is grounded in God the Trinity. I have to have the Trinity or else I can't be saved. No, I, I am being invited to be just like God in all the places that he is in all the places he is in calling me to both lead or to follow? Will we treasure the triune God enough to ground our lives in him this year? That's the invitation. Father, we love you. We thank you that you are who you are, just the way you've always been, and you've invited us not just to be citizens of your kingdom, but you've invited us into this dance of love that you have been enjoying from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.